0: Up with a very simple online guide called 3000, and the idea was just to try and usher people towards making decisions which were not just better for them as readers, but were actually better for the city. Because um, we tend to kind of think quite selfishly as consumers. It's like, what's in it for me when I buy this thing? But there's someone who's actually getting your money, and there's a question of what's in it for them. So for us, it was important to try and steer people towards cafes, bars, exhibitions, and events, which were not more just more enjoyable for them but could help support the sorts of things that we were interested in. Um, And now 10 years later, Right Angle's grown to a reasonably big company, certainly bigger than we expected. And we have offices around the country and um, a guide in Tokyo, but we're still doing the same thing. Like we've had a bit of an existential crisis after 10 years, having our birthday and thinking, it's so different and it's so stressful, and yet it's still the same thing. And it's really understand and improve life in our cities. And then I guess over that period of time, we've learned a lot about how cities behave and how they evolve. And you have to develop a kind of governing theory, some sort of framework to understand it. And for us, uh, the first thing that we thought was that even though cities are man-made, they sort of behave like an organism in the sense that the way that they grow is like biology. It's usually an incremental improvement on a previously existing thing. So you think about the type of bars that we have in Melbourne, you know. I dare say that the next bar that we have in Melbourne will be pretty much a small iteration on the last bar that we had in Melbourne. It just works incrementally. That's not an insult. I think it's actually great. And it's it's a way of going into a new business idea and having some kind of confidence that it's not going to bomb. But it's interesting when cities do things which are radical and totally new, they generally fail. You know, if you think about this city, I think most obviously Docklands. You know, here was this extraterrestrial idea with really big... Buildings and none of the kind of cues that people in Melbourne really kind of love Melbourne for, and the city has a pretty swift and merciless way of dealing with it 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 kills it and it 's really really difficult to um to come back so we 've always thought that cities behave like organisms. The second thing that we thought was that the organic process of this evolution it 's just too slow, um, maybe for our Uh, personality as as brothers like we're interested in doing new things and as quickly as we can Um, we're only on this planet for a limited amount of time we only have our youth for a limited amount of time well I had my youth for a limited amount of time (laughs) and um, and so for us we sort of frustrated by that and we thought um, you know can we can we change this can we intervene in the life of the city and try and move things along at a faster pace make them better quicker and our belief is that you really can. Like, if you apply yourself to the task, there are ways in which you can make a city move faster, improve quicker, and be better than it would just naturally if it was just kind of plodding along. Um, and so we've begun to sort of really think about the future of cities. And it's funny, a lot of we're often led to believe that the future is this. Place that we're all moving to, that it's preordained. But it's its really not. It's just an idea in our head. And once you've got that idea in your head, it begins to shape you and you shape it. And so I guess over 10 years, we've really kind of gone about the task of trying to incrementally improve the cities that we've been in. And we've just delighted in dreaming about the sort of city that would Melbourne would become and tried to help it become that way in as many ways as possible. And its it's done something back to us, which is really kind of you know, changed our life and changed the sorts of people that we are. So that's why the topic of um, this talk today is um, how we shape the city and then how the city shapes us. And I'm uh, really honored to be and also kind of overwhelmed <laughs> um, to be looking at uh, a panel of people who are all fundamentally doers in the creation of cities. different cities, uh, different projects uh, from different skills, but they're unified by, I think, um a a capacity to to really try and understand what people want and what will flourish in a city and create environments within which that can happen, so the purpose of today 's chat is really to just discuss the topic but from a few different viewpoints and i have um, I might actually introduce you guys singularly and and ask you a question uh, and then we 'll kind of work around to um, to the conversation, but I'm going to start with you, Nectar, uh, the golden Greek in the middle. So, uh, Nectar <laughs> Nectar is a philosopher trapped in a developer's body. Um, he uh, is largely responsible for um, Hotel Hotel and the New Acton Precinct up in Canberra, which um, quite a few of you would have been there, quite a few of you probably worked on it. It is the most remarkable and astonishing place in Australia. It's just it's so carefully considered and beautiful. And um, you know, most, most new things that happen in a city feel terrible for at least five years, but you can walk in the front door of Hotel Hotel and straight away you feel like you belong there and it's really home. And I remember when Nectar came into our studio, he's like, um, like a goat herder and a goth and uh, just, just all this kind of crazy. And he walked in and said, I don't really want to build buildings, I want to build culture. And I thought that was a really kind of interesting idea. And he's gone about the task of doing that. So I thought maybe as a first question for you, um, you could explain a little bit about your ambitions with New Acton and, and how you've gone about the, the process of building culture.
1: Um, thanks, Barry. Hmm. Um, I think first what we've got to do is ask the question about what culture is. And if we just pause there for a moment, um, when I... Consider that question. I, I I kind of begin with Ernest Becker's, the American cultural anthropologist, who said that we build, we build, culture as a means of def- generating meaning to transgress our death anxiety. <laughs> so, <clears throat> it's pretty heavy, but I think it's what we do in order that we can, you know, move past the. Kind of uncomfortable feelings of human beings, but it's not how we, as human beings, internalise culture. So I think what we do is we build these representational um, aspects of our life, and um, and I agree with him. But, um, I think when we and we do these by looking at art, literature, um, uh, religion. We do it also by classifying the world around us and um, you know whether it's race or it's fruit and vegetables. Um, so I thought you know when when, when, we, when I look at people engaged in culture and having fun with culture, which was I guess where we started with the hotel, um, where we think um, what's important is to um, create or support, create a series of armitage, armatures and vessels that allow people to develop up their kind of own mythologies about themselves. So I, um, I don't think we build culture. I think what we're intending to do, um, whether it's with processes, ideas mm. or buildings, is to build a series of vessels. Um, and for those vessels become opportunities for people to develop up their own ideas from there. I mean, we're interested in the cracks and the crevices of life that people can fall uh, through or climb through in their relation to themselves. And I think with cities or with buildings or with programs, we often want to resolve everything To an inch of its life Mm. and um, particularly when planners get a hold of things or public legislators do and um, it's a really fine line between developing up um, an armitage and a vessel and resolving it to the point that there's enough there for people to be able to you know uh, create leaping points into new worlds but it also needs to allow for an ability for us to be able to colonise those places. So, um, you know, with with the hotel, it was it wasn't a hotel, but as you said, we wanted to end up building a place for for people to uh, you know kind of explore new aspects of of themselves. And it's only when you're bending your mind, or bending um, you know places, or bending rules, or um, a, are in a process of a state of curiosity, mm. I think that we're developing up the best culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I guess maybe to you schoolhouse studio girls, because in some sense, what you've managed to do as, um, I hate to. I hate the idea of you guys as landlords. You're more like... We're not. Almost, you're not. Like, <laughs> Our like,
2: landlord is on the panel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Behave yourself then. Um, but you look after people. You create a, a vessel for people. And I, I think probably of the, the people on the panel, you might be the, the lesser known. So maybe start with just a bit of an explanation about what Schoolhouse Studios does. And then I'm, I'm really interested to know about how what sort of relationship you have with your, your tenants. Yeah. Do you
3: want me to... Yeah, I'll start. Um... So, Schoolhouse Studios is essentially artist studios. It uh, started in Abbotsford, Alice, and um, her friend Elizabeth Barnett started it um, in 2011, I think. Ten, maybe. Ten, maybe. Yeah. Um, In an old school, the old Steiner School on Nicholson Street, Abbotsford. And um, it started out of a necessity for uh, artists and makers to have some space that was affordable, and also to have some proximity to like-minded um, people, in the, people in the exact same situation. And I moved in um, as it started with my record label that I was running. And um, I feel like this should be your part because you started it. <laughs> no,
2: keep going, nailing it. Okay,
3: well I'll keep going. Um, anyway. I, My part in that is that I um, I was running a record label out of one of the studios and um, eventually ended up helping Alice out with the management um, of the studios and and the events, uh, mainly the events and the maintenance of the site. Um, Anyway, we we ended up uh, being kicked out of that space due to uh, large development. I think there was 89 um, townhouses being built and we didn't have a lift, so council were like, Uh, you know, you have to leave or or put a $30,000 lift in there. Uh, But it was an absolute dream in that school. There was a basketball court, a big Mm. orchard, and there was, you know, huge studios that were like $50 a week because we had incredibly low rent Mm. because it was temporary. And we had some amazing events there, um, you know, with 500 to 1,000 people, huge music events um, and dance parties and just... Uh, markets and all sorts of things there that we had uh, the freedom to do because we had such an affordable space. Um, Anyway, we were moved out of there in 2013, I think. (laughs) And Alice and I embarked on uh, the huge mission of trying to find a new space. And after about a year, we were introduced to Nectar, Mm. who had bought a building in Collingwood and um, had offered us a subsidised rent to move our artists in there. Mm. So it was a huge effort trying to keep the community together. Yeah,
0: did you lose Um, people along the way? We lost
3: heaps of people, but quite a few people had sort of moved home with their practice and and, um, supported us along the way. We built a huge following um, via our Possible campaign, which we Mm. raised $50,000 from to build the new site. And we built a new site in Collingwood. Um, I'm probably going over the... Question. There's no, no rules, it? no. Okay. <laughs> I'm
0: totally underprepared as well. So just
3: okay, go, yeah. well, no, yeah, now we exist um, in a warehouse in Collingwood with um, close to 100 artists, makers, entrepreneurs and um, creative business people. Um, and, yeah, it actually works, nearly, Alice and I were talking about it, it nearly works better in a smaller space where um, people have uh, sort of inescapable proximity to each other and there's so much collaboration that happens because everybody can see into each other's studios and, you know, you can't really get to the cafe without passing somebody else and having a conversation. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, so it seems like you guys had a couple of pieces of luck along the way. Uh, one so was finding luck. the school yeah. and then the second was finding someone like, like Nectar. Um, but the way that the city <coughs> normally is uh, maybe kind of precludes the sort of work that you do because it might cost too much or you need a $30,000 lift or, or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. There's a huge amount of red tape that we would mm. sort of ran up against hundreds of times and mm. we were very lucky to have a lot of... Um, Generosity from people like Nectar and McCorkle Constructions, who donated the fit out at cost, and all the people who donated to Puzzable, and it was a very uh, huge community effort, really.
1: Barry, there's no luck. Those guys just went out out (laughs) and did it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they would have done it with us, without us. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah. Things don't, things yeah, things don't come easy. <laughs> um, Ferocious. <laughs> Ferocious. Sitting timidly here.
0: Um, so you guys have created this uh, environment within which people flourish, and uh, I think Michaela has very much done the, the same thing. So Michaela um, is the creative Lord Grand poobar of Studio <laughs> Round. <laughs> I don't even know. What, what do I call you officially? Creative director? Creative. Even that seems silly. Uh, if you walk into studio round it feels amazing as you walk in the door and you can you just get the sense straight away that um, all of the people in there want to be there they they're on the hook and that sort of stuff Except for those of you that are shaking your head yeah. who actually worked work around and got to bed at midnight last night. Um, I th- that, doesn't come, that doesn't come easily. Uh, this, this is definitely something uh, which we've learned through our business is that creating a, a culture where people feel comfortable and where uh, they can get on and do what they wanna do doesn't necessarily happen by accident. It happens by design. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in, in Melbourne design and particularly you know, graphic design, which is your area of specialty. Is that, in, in your opinion, like a Melbourne house style?
4: <clears throat> I think there, there is. There is a, a Melbourne house style. But I think that um, when Barry asked that question, when Barry asked me that question, um, I had to think about it for a while because when I first arrived in Melbourne, which was nearly 12 years ago, I don't think there was... there, there For me at that stage, there was a kind of an Australian style, but there wasn't really a... Um, from my perspective, looking in at that time i wasn 't seeing a really strong style that was mm. a Melbourne style and um, coming from London at that time where there was a really really there was a sort of english sensibility and and it was quite interesting seeing this place which was um, from a design perspective a little bit you know there was it was a bit far it was it was behind i suppose from what i 'd been used to and um and, and it was more not it was it wasn't aesthetically behind but it was the thinking there wasn't the same amount of rigor of thinking mm-hmm. and now what's been interesting in the kind of 12 years of working and um, is that actually there is a style and that's not a bad thing it's the fact that um, the style is representative of the place and if you look at um, how you would describe a place so it's mm-hmm. almost like the place has grown and the style has grown with that place mm-hmm. so if you look at a place like like Sydney for instance the work there the design work that's done there is a little bit bolder it's a bit faster it's a bit um, um, more executional at times, whereas if you look at Melbourne, it's a bit more um, retrospective sometimes, it's a bit more crafted, it's a bit more hidden, it's a bit more, um, you have to sometimes, it sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't, just like the place. Um, So it's sort of, I think, and if you look at any place, when the work starts to feel like the place, that's not a bad, I don't see that as a bad thing, I think it's a a thing where we're actually starting to understand the place that we're occupying and and if we can do that more, and um, it's actually, it'll strengthen what we do rather yeah. than looking out all of the time and bringing that back in. Yeah,
0: so it's, it's kind of supporting the, the conjecture that um, the place shapes us as people, like the your, your yeah. visual output is directly related to, or indirectly related to, the nature of the city in which you exist.
4: That, yeah. yeah that's right and I think the more desi- I, I'm not scared about how many designers there are, the more there is the mm. more actually we shape ourselves the more stronger we can become mm. as, as a as a body
0: Yeah, I maybe we'll go back to that point a little bit later because I'm interested to understand whether if a city gets a design thing it can get pushed too far mm. and seem a little bit like a house style I yeah. suppose, Over. but ma- maybe moving on to Bob and places, so Bob uh, is also a philosopher <laughs> trapped in a in another man's body. Uh, He's the the Buddha of landscape design, in my opinion, um, and has an incredible, incredible head for urban affairs. Um, He runs a company called Oculus, who do landscape design. And I think, um, yeah, you know what? I kind of get the same feeling when I walk into all of your places, which is that it's just comfortable and easy to belong. But how do you go about um, tackling the, the problems of a site? How do you go from here it is physically to here's the right idea for it?
5: That's a big question. Um, <laughs> Hand over your IP. I think, um, I, I think a lot of what we do is observational. Um, it, you know, it's we're all affected deeply by our childhood. Um, and I think that I personally am deeply affected by my childhood. I'm not a native of Australia, um, but I have been here now 22 years. So I have been affected from my past and my present status in Australia coming from New York, uh, living in California and San Francisco, I think I'm affected by all those all those things. And I think I bring all those things to the projects that we're involved with. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated with people, and I think what people, um, people want, they want to feel connected. They want to feel connected to the place that we're creating. And um, it's not about style or about being cool. I mean, I think there's a, a obsession with Melbourne about what's the next cool, and I don't think it's about cool. It's about what touches us as yeah. human beings. And I'm not always sure what touches us as human beings, but I but I do know what touches me. Mm. And I think I, we, you know, we, we, we bring that um, to, our, to our projects. Mm. And I like to feel um, a sense of warmth. Mm. I want to feel like I can engage with people. I don't want to feel separated. I want to feel like I can... Um, approach people and in public space and uh, so my fascination Mm. is public space Mm. so what I bring to it is the idea of engaging with people in public space is um, something that Melbourne I think probably needs a bit of work on Mm. um, as it goes forward it's it's not about being pretty Mm. it's about bringing out you know we were talking about creating culture earlier Um, Melbourne is fascinated with movement the streets, the trams, mm. the consuming of the city. Mm. It's, a, it's a consumptive kind of personality, Melbourne. Mm. Mm. And I'm fascinated with how we can slow public space down a bit, how we yeah. can slow it down. And the idea of lingering, lingering in public space and actually just being, mm. as opposed to, and engaging with the people that are around us. Um, so that's probably what kind of drives,
0: yeah. drives So space.
5: An understanding of a, a basic
0: human need yeah. Yeah. yeah, which I had I learned this morning, Alice, that you started No Lights, No Lycra, I did. which is a That's phenomenon, true. like one of Melbourne's most famous exports. Wow. Um, so what was that? I mean, there must have been a human need, like some kind of mortifying experience on a dance floor. What, maybe I explain. I think everyone's uh, had uh, what, a
2: mortifying experience uh, yeah, on a dance floor. I've had many,
0: <laughs> <laughs> too many to remember. But yeah. can you explain a little bit about how you, how did you come to that idea?
2: Um, oh, you've thrown me. I had no idea we were going <laughs> yeah, to No sorry, Lights sorry, I wanted to say that. No, yeah. it's fine. Um, so <coughs> Heidi and myself, who started No Lights, were studying dance at the time and we were just sick of dancing in front of mirrors, dancing because we were, you know, practising for a performance. We just wanted to get back to what it felt like to enjoy dancing. And... Mm. Um, Yeah, made a Facebook event, booked out a hall in Fitzroy and turned off the lights, played all our favourite tracks and it went gangbusters.
0: And isn't it like now in 50 cities around the world or something?
2: 69 cities internationally now, yeah. Do you get a
0: royalty for it? (laughs) How does it work? We
2: do have a licence agreement, yes, that we make everyone sign just to keep the continuity internationally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They've now got an app too. Ah, Yeah, we do. We just released (laughs) an app, Dance Break. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 been an amazing journey. Again, it happened very organically. It yeah, happened out yeah. of, you know, it was something that we felt we needed in our lives and yeah. um, gave it a go and it just happened that there were many people out there who were also experiencing the same need to dance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awkwardness, exactly. yeah.
0: Oh, it's amazing. Um, so, yeah, it seems like the common thread through all of you is um, that the, the starting point of your, your thinking and your work in the end is, is people and how you make them comfortable and I, I love that like I think it's very easy in business to um, think too much about the the money or, or put the money first and, and that's necessary I mean we all need to survive, but I think to start with that very basic understanding of a human being and I love the way that you guys have all done it in this um, like a it's an intuitive thing that you do and it's, you know we deal with so much data that's provided by big market research companies which divide people into quintiles and deciles and all these things. Actually, John Betts would probably fall off the stool when you he hear me say that. Um, you know, and it's just, it's just numbers and uh, thoroughly dehumanising. And so we spend a lot of time really trying to get our heads into the, the life of these people who we're trying to speak to through our products. And I think as a, a kind of nice point in our evolution, got from a point of always imagining what we would want to being able to imagine what somebody else would want not what would I do in your shoes, but what if I was you in your shoes and what's the right response? But maybe moving on to this question of, of city shaping. So there are, there are movers and shakers in the city um, and I'd be interested to know from you guys, um, you know, who do you think shaping the city of Melbourne in a positive way at the moment? And I think Michaela, you've kind of got a, a star client who might, <laughs> might be a nice one to speak to.
4: So um, <clears throat> Andrew McConnell, I think is, is for us, someone that we've worked with for many years and, and um, really probably back to that point of people mm. he's not just opening up the latest um, cool thing he really does think about people and people's needs mm. and people in different parts of the city so I think I think um, he's someone that we've worked with and really enjoy the way that he thinks and, mm. and, and thinks about um, how to shape different spaces from that food perspective but definitely not just from a Bar, you know, for whether it's a bar or a taking over an existing pub or um, taking, uh, we've just done Meat Smith, which is a butcher's um, on Smith Street. But you know, it's definitely a, it's it's his interpretation yeah. of different experiences and how we've worked together. They're, they're all completely different. It's yeah. not none of them are the same. None of them have the same I mean, brush.
0: Yeah, that's such an a, an incredible approach to business. You know, like I really like Fonda. I think it's good, but they. Roll out one funder that's the same as the last funder. That's their business model, and it's it's great for them, I'm sure. Mm. But that's that's why I'm in awe of someone like Andrew, who every single time does something different, and every time it's at that amazing quality. What about you, Nectar? Will you do another hotel hotel, or is it? Yeah. Um, what happens when you replicate?
1: (laughs) I uh. I mean, we may do another hotel. I mean, we've we've been talking about it for some time. Um, would it be the same? We, we would never be the same one. But mm. but actually, what I'm interested in talking about in terms of cities and uh, you know how we shape them mm. is, you know, I mean, being intensely involved in the development process um, and really interested in moving away from hermetically sealed concepts of our environments and into things that allow a bunch, you know, a lot of messiness to occur. I think when I look at Melbourne and look at any city, I think what we need to be doing is finding ways to embrace the edges. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I mean, there are people like Andrew doing extraordinary things, um, but I think the people, for me, um, that start to really um, define cities maybe not today, but certainly provide the the seeds of the forest that grow beyond yeah. are all the, all the people that are invisible, that are sitting on the fringes, that probably don't have jobs that you cross the street when you see, but are out there doing, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the bizarre things. And we've got to find some way to embrace those people. We're all in the middle. I mean, no matter yeah. what we think, we're privileged and in the middle and i think what we need to do is find ways for governments and legislators in some way to provide at least spaces i mean there's no utopian you know world where you know uh, i guess everyone's going to want that stuff to happen and in fact you need ambulances to turn up on time and you need schools to run but maybe what we can do and it was something that you touched on in your email barry maybe what we need to do is allow some spaces throughout Melbourne, whether they're small public spaces, so you know, uh, take a five by five site in a central park, or take a house in Coburg, and remove all of the traditional rules and constraints, and let you know, other than people kind of killing themselves, finding ways to explore stuff to just happen. Yeah. Um, so. A- it takes a, a
0: really um, sp- special sort of mind to have the confidence to allow that to happen, and it's almost like governments and big shareholder listed companies are um, structurally incapable of doing that. I mean, I'm very interested, Bobby. Bob you being a landscape architect, a gardener, uh, in some sense, sorry, does it, does it, that's are you a gardener? Do you call a landscape architect a gardener? <laughs> I'll be whatever you want me to be. Barry. <laughs> yeah. I would like you to be a gardener <laughs> as opposed to an architect, because I think you know an architect designs something to within an inch of its life and it's all about can we bring this to life exactly as is on the drawings whereas a gardener plants seeds has a theory about how it's going to evolve yeah. but it evolves in a different way and you kind of run with that and that spontaneity is is fantastic and i think this is what nectar is talking about like creating these more gardens rather than buildings as a, as a metaphor more places where the unplanned and the unexpected might happen um, is that yeah like one of the joys that you get from your work is the fact that you don't quite know how it's going to pop out.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. and I think that's why we, uh, I didn't do architecture, yeah. um, and uh, we think of our work as a as a canvas. Mm. Like a, it, you know, the, the stuff that we build mm. is only just a field for stuff to happen. Yeah, and the field is the, the the field is just a yeah it's a canvas, but the stuff that happens is the fun stuff. Yeah. it's it's that that's what that's what makes cities alive. Yeah. Um, but I, on top of that, being a gardener, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, I, there's a couple things I, I think particularly about Melbourne that I think are, are interesting, and Nectar alluded to them. One is there's a serious crisis with affordability of housing for people in the city, and and also not just housing, but also work spaces, mm. and the, it, it, it's an elitist city grid, and it's quite frightening. Mm. Um, and I think that walking around, because a lot of what we do is observational. It's, it's observing people, how they use space. You know what? You only see about 40% of the strata of society in the city. Mm. Most of it is actually you know, middle class or wealthy folks. There's some, there's some people who are, are less fortunate, but cities are about the full strata. And I think that we're really missing a lot of -hmm. culture by not having the full spectrum of society in our city, in our city grid. Mm -hmm. It's out in other places where maybe we don't see it, but we really, we're just missing out so much. And I think to add to that, I think what Melbourne needs as well is, it needs public spaces. It actually needs spaces that people can linger in without buying a coffee, sitting in a restaurant. It needs true public spaces that are inserted into the city grid. Is all this development happening? The city should be able to buy some, some actually, some buildings, create little pocket parks, create not just green laneways. The city's doing some amazing stuff, but some serious little insertions into the city grid. Everyone's walking around buying stuff, and I think what I would argue is that I would like to be able to go eat my lunch somewhere besides City Square and and the pub and the um, State Library that I feel like I'm actually in the city without Mm -hmm. going out to the burbs. So, yes, so being a gardener, Mm -hmm. I feel, (laughs) I really feel the city is lacking that depth of what it could actually be as a city.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a a really good point. Uh, And one of my kind of great fears, uh, doing the sort of work that we do, um, particularly us badasses in development, is we, we talk about you know, diversity and, um, you know, dexterity and resilience and all of these different things, but we've really got such a, a narrow, well, most of us have got a very narrow view of what diversity is. It's a, you know, a coffee that costs $3 or $5, that's the the bandwidth. And we don't think enough about uh, the vast majority of life, which is actually outside of what will fit on a Monocle magazine front cover. You know, it's like a very, very narrow wedge. So um, what about you guys at S- Schoolhouse? I mean, I. I Bob is not afraid of throwing rocks as a gardener. Um, what about you guys? Like, what are the what do you think Melbourne's challenges are in terms of how it's um, evolving as a city and how it grows as a city?
2: We were talking about this before, and um, definitely to relate to what you were saying, mm. we were talking about how amazing Edinburgh Gardens are mm-hmm. as a utopic kind of place for people to meet and... Mm gather and share ideas and it doesn't cost you anything, you you know, obviously it's illegal to drink there, but everybody does and... it's kind um, naturally evolved to that, like, nobody's curated it. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, and, yeah, I think if we could create more places like that around the city, then you know, it would be a better...
3: And even those places are, you know, they're threatened to be shut down. I was on a committee last year about... Um, whether or not people should be able to drink on New Year's Eve mm-hmm. in Edinburgh Gardens and there were so many good ideas that came out of it yeah. um, you know to have amazing signage and really good lighting designed by artists mm-hmm. and be more like Meredith and stuff yeah. but it just got shut down yeah. and it, I'm pretty sure there's like no drinking after nine o'clock and it's going to be heavily policed and all the money's going to go into, into that security you know which obviously has its place but they're not really taking enough risks, It seems. Yeah, it
0: seems to be like a legacy of our convict past, that we don't trust mm-hmm. ourselves to behave and we need yeah. to regulate ourselves so intensely. Um, Nectar, you travel a lot, but what cities um, do you go to overseas where you just think, you know what, they're kind of getting it right um, just by letting it be, yeah. letting people get away with things
1: that might otherwise um, be illegal? Um, well, I was just listening to Alice and all about Edinburgh Gardens and I've spent... Been away for the last few months, and one of the places I've spent a lot of time in is Athens. And it's interesting to you know, you know, been, been going to Greece for for my whole life, and um, looking at Athens today as opposed to looking at Athens pre-crisis, um, it's enormously different. In fact, I mean, from the outside, if you if you see Athens um, without it being involved in it. You'd think, here's a city that's essentially in decay. But in fact, it's being remade culturally and physically in so many new ways that we can't imagine. In my mind, I I can't think of a city that's more vibrant or energetic. So when I ask the question, how is it possible that a place like that has that much life force? I can... I, I think it probably... Part of the answer lies in the fact that when you dismantle government and bureaucracies and institutions, humanity finds ways to fill those vacuums. They don't die. They, in fact, find ways to grow. Yeah. What we do, I think, in Australia and, you know, in developed countries, and there's good, there, there are good and bad things, but when we, when we're progressive and have a huge amount of control then we squeeze out and crowd out all the stuff that can happen so i mean i think athens just by its nature forces you know because there is no there is no rules people are essentially there's no government people are essentially making stuff happen they're contacting each other they're creating new programs artists and musicians are getting together they're colonizing buildings which is part of what, you know, Bob was talking about. They will, and, and I guess it's probably not this, you know, unlike Detroit. Um, yeah. and, and I think we need, and, and it happens on the fringes of Melbourne, mm. you know, yeah. in, in parts other that aren't that developed, and we've got to find ways yeah. to preserve those. We're not going to, we're not going to destroy the city here, but what we do need to do is perverse, preserve some of those places. Yeah. Um,
0: so you're talking about uh, this, this idea that environments are almost undesigned. Um, or there is there is no design, and I'm interested from a, in a graphic sense. I, I've always been impressed by the restraint in the Studio Rounds' design. Like it, um, it doesn't crowd, You don't crowd out pages. You don't have a look which is so forceful, someone can't interpret it. And so I think that everyone has a prob- probably has a different reading of the things that you produce. Uh, you know, s- same with this architecture. I mean, again, so flimsy and so light, and so it leaves space for the individual to interpret and to enjoy themselves. But is, is that something that you're kind of mindful with the, the look and feel of the work that you do to just leave it open to interpretation?
4: I, I think it is. it probably comes from the place where we started, where we, 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 we started by working with probably mostly artists and we were, we were very conscious of what our role was and, mm. and trying to make sure that there was enough, we, we were there to um, work with their work and we still have a bit of that philosophy even when we're working with different clients it's all about it's all about what they're doing and we're just there to kind of help um, facilitate and work out a way to to get that message mm. and communicate that and actually take anything away that's not necessary yeah um, and maybe that's a way to look at at, at space and, and place as well yeah. it's like removing removing what's not necessary and, and, yeah. and actually just thinking about um, those different kind of places, but also engaging with different makers and artists and, and allowing them to be part of the process we do. Yeah. We're like you, we work with developers and, and so many times it's often the, the, the co- first part of the conversation is, oh, we want to do what those guys have done and can you do another mm. can you do another version of that? And it's like, well, mm. oh, no, no, we don't really, we don't do that, but I'm sure there are people that do that and, and I think we need to... Um, we spend a lot of our time challenging those kind of conversations. Mm. It's quite exhausting. But to try and, and actually try and have more conversations, when we worked with Nectar on Hotel Hotel, <clears throat> there was a lot of conversations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, there were, were conversations. Conversations <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah. So, you know, and, and at times, <clears throat> it was kind of a bit like, go, oh, we just want to get started. Can we just get started? <laughs> like, you know, it was <laughs> like frustrating. But... I just looking, wanted
1: to hang out... I-
4: The office. But in retrospect, looking at it now, Mm. you can see why those conversations and less of jumping in and just making cool marks for cool marks' sake and more conversation about philosophy and place and values and why it exists. We can see the importance of that. More of that is really critical, I think.
0: Bob, I um, read an article about a practice in France called Lacaton and Vassell, Uh mainly architects, and they got briefed by a council to fix their civic plaza. And they spent two weeks looking at the civic plaza and went back to the council and said, it's absolutely fine, just leave it alone. And they, they walked away from the job, having done the research. Um, in your opinion, uh, what, what public space would you just leave alone in Melbourne? Oh,
5: th- oh, there's so many. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, you alluded to this earlier. I think that um, so many places in Melbourne are over-designed. Mm. And I think that they don't have any breathing room for people to actually do stuff to it. Mm. And it's um, it's just so much stuff, you know? Like, we, again, going back to the cool factor, mm. um, we just have to learn how to stop, you know? <laughs> like, just to, to stop. It doesn't yeah. need that stuff. Yeah. Um, It'll look really cool on the cover of a magazine, but that's all, it will look, Yeah. it will look. And I think that City Square is a great example. I think it was redesigned three times, by the city actually, um, and you know, finally they just kinda, it's there and now people use it. But sorry, I have to say this, uh, Melbourne is obsessed with events. Mm. Events, events, <laughs> events, we have to have events because <laughs> events creates culture. But we're over-evented. We don't need that many events. We could have less events and more just the city is a city. Mm. And people live in it. They breathe in it. They do stuff in it. And they meet each other. The city square doesn't have to be covered in Christmas. Mm. It's kind of (laughs) cool. I like elves. But it it doesn't actually need that. I mean, one of the great spaces for me in Melbourne is the library forecourt. The state library forecourt. It is an amazing space. People just smother it. They use it. They protest. They do stuff. It's really a kind of, in a way, undesigned. Mm. It's really brilliant. Yeah. What about your schoolhouse studios, girls? Well, Favorite was, space? Oh, you
0: gonna, or talk gonna about gonna whatever you want. Else, really? Do it.
2: Just that I feel like schoolhouse has had um, a pretty natural exposure to how brilliant architecture can be. Yeah. So we, as Hazel touched on, we um, first started. Um, or we took over an old school in Abbotsford that was huge land. You know, we had a, a massive orchard, a big basketball court. Artists had large spaces. We're talking like thousand square metres. Right. It was huge. The it was amazing. Floor. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was utopia. Yeah. And then we were terrified about the prospect of trying to transport that into mm. a much smaller space Um, without any of the open space, no grounds or outdoor space really at all. And in actual fact, going through that process of working with an architect and deciding, realising exactly what we needed to make the community work, Mm. um, you know, we never thought we'd get to this point, but we actually feel like our current space works better. Than our previous site, and that's because we worked with a team of yeah. architects to um, realise exactly how the community interacted and mm. how best to, you know, facilitate collaboration and interactions between artists and, um, yeah, it, it's it's.
3: Go go. I was going to say about the architect a bit before you finish. Who was um, it, by the way? Murray Barker and Raphael Kilpatrick. He's an uh, interior designer, but. They both work from within Schoolhouse as well, mm-hmm. which I think is very yeah. important. So they designed it in a way that they had to be in it too. Yeah. You know? so They're we've
0: responsible got, for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's
3: a warehouse, but we've got um, polycarbonate transparent pitched roofs inside yeah. so you can see yeah. the lofty um, sawtooth ceiling through yeah. the roof and you've got a whole wall that's um, polycarbonate too that you can see through. Um, and it's a it's a cluster. It's not a... A line of studios or big long hallways. Mm. It's it's higgledy piggledy and it's you know it's it feels close okay. and warm. Yeah, I think that and there's a meeting spot in the middle where the ping pong table.
0: Yeah, okay. So <laughs> all right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, all important hub. So um, it's not really feeling warm here. It's beginning to cool down a little bit. <laughs> um, so maybe we'll just we'll wind this up pretty soon. But uh, we're we're launching a poster map. I don't quite know what to call it a uh, (laughs) mosta. it's called a guide. Where to from here? On one side, the red side, um, is sort of 10 things to do near M Pavilion from Amanda Lovett, who is the uber talented, incredible architect of this space. And then on the other side, there's 10 things to do near M Pavilion uh, at the hand of 3000. And what I like about it is that all of these things are odd. You know, it's car parks, it's it's a whole bunch of obscure places it's not an obvious cafe and it's not an obvious bar and i think that's a very important thing in what we do is we're trying to say um, the city has an anatomy which is diverse and has lots of different things going in it and we need to be very careful to try and reflect that balance somehow and try and participate in these things which aren't like the newest cool most obvious things so i encourage you to go out and wildly experience all of the things that are on this, on this map. And thanks to the, the team, to Chris and Anna uh, and Sam for putting it together. But maybe as a, a parting shot for you guys, if you could just um, maybe we reference the, the name of the map. Where to from here? What, what's coming up for Melbourne? Where do, we, where do we need to go? You can start. Starting you have me. to. Yeah. Uh,
2: I think it needs, there needs to be more space for artists. We need to yeah, make... Being an artist in the inner city more affordable. Yep. Yeah. More culture.
0: Yep.
3: Mm. Hayes? Um, sort of further from that, like, I don't know if we said this before, but we wouldn't be able to exist without the old buildings. Mm. Um, and they're, you know, apart from being beautiful and a pain in the ass at the same time, that's why they're affordable, I think, mm. is that, you know, they're older and, the, and like Bob said, they're left, you yeah. know, they're a blank slate. Yep.
0: Nectar. I'm rebranding um. you as an anarchist, not a philosopher. Well,
3: actually, well. <laughs>
1: um, erasing architecture. So um, <laughs> you I, are an anarchist. <laughs> I, I I think they've, they've, there's there's got to be some opportunities to erase us, you know buildings and give them over to public space, mm. but not in locations that you'd ordinarily conceive of. I mean, mm. take Sydney Road, and you take a little. Uh, a couple of shitty buildings out, not the higgledy-piggledy ones, but the other ones, and put a little park in those, and let people be able to colonise those places. Yeah.
5: Um, reduce the owner investment population in the city, and actually have people really living in the city. So it um, going from a just a rental market, mm. owner invest owner investor situation, to actually people living and working in the city, you can walk to work um, and on top of that, I add an extra. Um, have the city buy three sites in the grid and turn them into pocket parks. Yep.
4: Mm. And I think for <clears throat> for us and what we do, it's more s- slowing down and more thinking about what we're doing and why we're doing it mm. and questioning why we're actually putting... We get asked all the time to do something that looks cool, but actually questioning and stopping doing that and, yeah. and actually... Yeah, more consideration.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, all of you, so much. Uh, very generous, and, um, yeah, we're really grateful for you giving your time and your thoughts. We have, um, there's some books out there. There should be enough for everyone. Uh, it's a book called Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. In fact, there's probably two books for everyone, so it's a Christmas present solved. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fairy tale, it's a, but it's a beautiful fairy tale about someone who can imagine cities, and I, I think we, we should all be doing this. Like we can go through our entire life not thinking about how things can be better and not trying to do something to help affect that change. And I I don't say that to be high-minded, but it's just totally possible. So I guess because you guys are here and even part of this conversation, that, that means that you're doing that already. And thank you very much for coming.